Welcome to the New Providence Presbyterian Church podcast, where we will share our messages from our weekend worship services. We hope these messages will inspire you and challenge you in your walk with Jesus. Well, I have the honor and privilege as a pastor to have a window into so many different lives, in different stages of life, in both the ups and the downs, in both the the uh, times of celebration and the times of struggle. And there's lots of patterns I've seen over the years. And one pattern I want to share with you today is very clear, and I know it's clear in my own life as well, is that typically someone grows in their faith more in a time of struggle than at other times. It's not something we'd ask for. We don't want to struggle. I know I don't want struggles, but I know in my life I've tended to grow in my faith more in times of struggle than in times, than other times. And yes, mountaintop experiences, retreats and conferences and concerts and and high moments, I love those moments too, but it's typically more in the valleys that growth occurs, not so much on the mountaintops. And and struggles are gonna come. We live in a broken world and we're part of that brokenness and so struggles are a given. But a friend of mine years ago gave me this term. He said, Jeff, be open to the gift of struggle. I'm like, those words don't tend to go together. Merry Christmas, here's a struggle. (laughs) Happy birthday, here's a struggle. The gift of struggle? But that's what they can be. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, As we think about growing in our faith in Christ and our walk with God, relationship with God, if that's true spiritually, yes. Think about physical fitness, resistance and tension. That's when growth occurs. If you don't have resistance and tension, growth doesn't occur. If that's true physically, how much more spiritually and yes, even relationally? And so struggles can be a gift. And we see that pattern in the Bible. In fact, we see how God shows up in the midst of the struggles. And as he does, he reveals himself in specific and even special ways in that time. And so we're going to consider that today as we continue in our sermon series entitled Breaking News. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four descriptions of the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. And we're looking at it through the lens of breaking news, news that breaks into our lives, news that changes us. Jesus came at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand or is near, that that his rule and reign, this good news was breaking in. And ultimately it's breaking in in and through him and through Jesus. And when Jesus' life intersects with someone else's life, there's a breaking in of the kingdom of God, his rule and reign, and those lives are impacted and changed. We see that over and over and over. So through this Gospel, we've been considering these accounts like news stories, looking at each one. What happened? Why is this significant? What does it mean for them to, back then? And what does that mean for us today? As we consider today, we're going to consider the gift of struggle. And the new story is the strange gift of struggle. The strange gift of struggle. So we pick up the action today. If you've been following, if you've been following along on our Mark uh, reading plan, the last couple verses before this, a significant event occurs. Jesus and his disciples have fed 5,000 people by the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. And so here, he's fed the 5,000. We come to today's account of this story. What's gonna happen? How are the people gonna react? What's gonna happen next? Well, we pick up this account in uh, verse 45 of chapter six. Reading this, we read, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. 
Here's the word immediately. This word happens over and over in the Gospel of Mark, at once or immediately, showing a change in location, a change or even within the movement within a location. Something's happening, something to pay attention to. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. That word is a, is a, is a, is a strong word. He compelled them. He forced them. We don't have reasons why. We could pick up maybe from the other gospel accounts where we saw that the crowd wanted to forcefully make Jesus king. And so there could have been a messianic uprising at this point if, if something didn't change. So Jesus, knowing that, knows that his disciples aren't ready for that and it's not his time yet. He forces them into the boat to go away. And then we read how he then dismisses the crowd, goes up on a mountainside to pray. So interesting. It's one of the, the times in the gospel mark where we see Jesus get away to pray by himself. And we see that Jesus is alone on the mountainside. And his disciples are out in the water. They're separated. So picking up the action, what happens, continuing in verse 47 through the beginning of 48. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Right, the focus shifts now to the disciples. And we see that whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they're in distress. Take that from today's sermon. Whenever disciples get separated from Jesus, they're in distress. That's all you need to hear. I'm done. No, I mean, <laughs> there's more to come. But just take that. When you get separated from Jesus, there's distress. We see that here. We see the other instances in the gospel. They are in distress. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They're heading to Bethsaida, most likely going over the north part of the sea, and then this storm arises, a storm that typically would come in the evening and go through the night. It was called a sharkia, Greek for, I mean, Arabic for shark. It was a well-known type of storm at that time. And here they are in the water. It says they're straining at the oars. They're battling. They're fighting the wind. That description is, is rich in imagery. I mean, the original Greek talks about being tormented. They're fighting. They're battling. This is more than just, okay, I'm, ha I'm having a hard struggle. This is, they're getting nowhere, absolutely nowhere. On a letter, it makes me think of the fall, like for me when I go out to take care of my leaves. And I don't have a big gas blower. I don't have one of those. I don't have one of those big gas blowers. I have an electric one. I still plug it in. And it's a pretty good one. Not great, but it's pretty good. So I go out. And I'm telling you, it could be the calmest day. No wind, nothing happening, just calm. Hasn't been wind for weeks. No wind at all, nothing. You know where this is going. I turn on the belief blower, and it's like this massive storm, a sharkira comes blowing wind the other way. And as much as I blow the leaves in this direction, I feel like the, the leaves are flying over my shoulder the other direction. Why am I even out here, is what I'm thinking. I'm wasting my time. There's football to be watching. I'm here blowing leaves, and they're going nowhere. You take that to the, I think, infinite level. These disciples are out in the water facing this storm. The wind's blowing. They're straining at the oars. That's how Mark describes it. They're battling. I feel like they're getting nowhere. To increase the temperature a bit, this same word for straining at the oars of being tormented is the same word that's used to describe contractions in childbirth in Revelation 12 too. Now, I haven't been there in the sense of giving birth to a child. I've been in the room with my wife delivering four and seeing her pain, hearing her pain, her grabbing my, grabbing my hand and almost 
twisting and ripping my wrist in, in the side. And at one point, I remember her yelling, when is this ever going to end? For those of you who have gone through that and have appreciation for that, it's like that. You don't know when it's going to end. You don't know when the pain is going to end. Is it ever going to end? And all you focus is in that moment. They're straining at the oars. The same word that's used for contractions in childbirth. That's how much they're struggling. They're getting nowhere and they wonder, is this ever, ever going to end? Picking up the action, the second part of verse 48, we read this. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Here we see Jesus. He goes down from the mountain onto the sea. Yes, walking on the water. Like God in the Old Testament who came to, to help his people who are in distress, we see Jesus coming to help his disciples. And when we see God, as he, God helping his people in the Old Testament, we see that's a specific time where God reveals more about himself. Think about when the people of God are trapped in Egypt, enslaved, and they're crying out to God. And God shows up. He sends Moses to deliver. And Moses at the burning bush, that's where God reveals his name. That's where God reveals his character. And that's what happens as Jesus comes to his people. He comes to them by walking on the water. In the Old Testament, only God could walk on the water. Where do we get this from? Those at that time would have known in the Old Testament in the book of Job, chapter nine, verse eight, is this verse. God alone stretches out the heavens and God alone treads on the waves of the sea. God's the only one who walks on water. And here all the disciples saw him. They saw him and they thought he was a ghost. And they're terrified and they cry out. I would scream, but I've already done enough screaming already. I mean, they've been, they're just crying out, screaming. Now, it's interesting. These disciples, most of them are in familiar territory. Many of them are fishermen. So this is their home turf. This is their home field. They know this. They know these types of storms. And so they, 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 they should be able to push through this or find a way through this. But it was the extent of straining at the oars, the wind and the waves. And now seeing Jesus walking on water, they're terrified like a ghost. They yell out. This is, this is a big, big situation. And in the middle of it, Jesus Immediately, he says, immediately, he spoke to them. These three phrases, powerful phrases. He says, he says, take courage, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We could easily gloss over the details of this passage um, and miss out on the fact that Jesus' words and actions are intentional. In fact, Mark records them. As best as we could tell, Peter was the one who provided Mark the details of these accounts. And later, Peter would have come to a deeper knowledge of of all the different things that Jesus had said and done and and actually would have helped put this together. And Mark, as he records it, there's so much in here that points to the identity of Jesus and who he is and how he shows up as God, as the Son of God, here to his people. Starts with by saying that first, going back to that Job 9 and 8, that says God alone is the one who walks on water. That's the first clue. The second one is that Jesus was about to pass by. Why is that significant? We see in multiple places in the Old Testament how significant individuals at significant times, God passes them by. You think about Moses. 
in terms of on Mount Sinai, in terms of seeing God's glory, in Exodus 33, 21 and 22, we read this. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. That's Moses. Another significant figure, Elijah, also up on a mountain, says in 1 Kings 19, 11, we read this. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord is about to pass by. Pass by. If the original readers and, and those who heard the Gospel of Mark would have connected this description of passing by, saying there's something else going on here. There's something else going on in terms of who Jesus is. Only God passes by in this way. The original readers of Mark was also connected a description from Job, what took place here in, in Job 9.11. We read this. When he, meaning God, passes by, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot see perceive him well here we see jesus passing by not on a mountain but down on the sea and unlike job 9 11 all the disciples all of them see him what's interesting here jesus unlike the god that's described in job jesus made himself visible and seen and known by all and this description of him passing by connects and equates him with god but he's not a god who stays far away he's not a god who remains invisible He's a God who comes to be with us in the midst of the struggle. He doesn't stay far away. And then we keep going in terms of Jesus' words, what he said to the disciples, revealing who he is. These three phrases, important ones. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Right? Take courage. Echoes of God's word to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be of courage. Our high schoolers, that's been the focus of the high school retreat all weekend long, is be strong and courageous. Here, these words are echoed. Jesus is saying, have courage, have courage, take courage. And then he says, it is I, it is I. He's not just identifying himself, I'm here. It is I, ego eimi in Greek, which would have been the same description of, of what God revealed his name to Moses from the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. Here, Jesus is using those same words, it is I. Ego in me, I am who I am, meaning I am equated to the God of the Old Testament. I'm the God who walks on water. I'm the God who shows up. I'm the God who rescues his people. I am who I am. A name in the Old Testament reveals the character of the person. And here the very character that of God is revealed in Jesus. It's not a God who stays far away. And Jesus not only walks where God walks, he also takes his name. He takes his name. He says, take courage as I. Thirdly, he says, do not be afraid. Those words are echoed throughout the Old Testament. God's words, fear not, do not be afraid. God knows that we have fears. God knows that we have anxiety when we face an uncertain future. And those words over and over and over come from God. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2, we read, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When, not if, when, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. These words are echoed by Jesus. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And they come to these disciples who are straining at the oars. They're in pain. They're being tormented. They don't know if there's any help in sight. And here's Jesus putting courage into them. Take courage. He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Words of hope, words of strength, words from God himself. 
And what happens then? Pick up the action, finishing the account, verses 51 and 52. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they did not understand, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Interesting description here. Interesting description. Jesus climbs in the boat and the wind died down. How did they respond? It says they were amazed. Now, this word that's translated amazed is different than the amazed of the people early in earlier chapters. When they said they were amazed earlier as one who's cut to the heart, they came to belief. Here's one of more being astounded. Like, what just happened? It's described almost like when something's out of place, like a dislocated shoulder or there's a, a quick turn. It's, it's something's out of place. It's, it's, it doesn't seem right. They, they're amazed. They're astounded. They're, they're in awe. Mark adds the comment saying, because they had not understood about the loaves. What's he getting at there? Okay, right before this, Jesus and his disciples had fed 5,000 people. There's a multiplication of, of the loaves and the fish. And they had just gone through that. And they, had, they didn't understand what had happened there. He forced them into a boat. All of a sudden, they're straining at the oars all night. Then here comes Jesus walking like a ghost on the water, and he gets in the boat, and all of a sudden, the wind dies down. They don't understand that. There's a little bit of sensory overload going on here. I think all of us would be a little bit overwhelmed of our senses. Like you, I need some time, I need some recovery time. There was no recovery time for these disciples. They were overloaded. They had not understood the loaves. And then it gets interesting. Mark describes saying that their hearts were hardened. That description is typically used for the Pharisees, for those outside of faith. Here, the disciples, their faith isn't going forward. It's actually going backwards. There's sensory overload. They don't know what just happened. And their hearts are hardened. For me, there's a lot of grace in this story. That even with all this happening, the disciples don't get it. They don't get it. We see that in Mark's gospel a lot. They just don't get it. And it's more real, I think, with life. In fact, Peter, right? This is Peter providing the details to to Mark. Peter, who definitely didn't get it right away. He didn't get it at all. He kept talking, and he kept going in this direction. Jesus like, it's kind of over here. But he kept going that direction. Peter, who didn't get it, was part of these disciples. They didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. Here we see the struggle. The struggle. The good news in this passage is that God showed up. And even better news is that they weren't even calling out for help. They were just straining at the oars. They're in survival mode. They're like, is this ever going to end? Are we ever going to get to the other side? It's not like all of a sudden they pull aside and and John or James or one of the disciples uh, shares this wonderful prayer. Oh, Lord, if God has come and saveth us on the water. No, there was no big prayer that was said. They're just trying to survive. And Jesus shows up. There's good news in that. The struggle, however, again, revealed first God's help, but also who he was. James Edwards, in his commentary, Bible scholar, says, in storms, adversities, and defeat, human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is. Human insufficiency. Isn't that true? It's one thing when things are going well, when I feel like things are in control or going according to our past, but when we face storms, adversities, and even defeats, defeats, no one likes to lose, I don't like to lose, but defeats. It could be a strange gift, a strange gift where God reveals himself. These disciples were struggling. They were straining at the oars. It revealed their limits. It revealed their human insufficiency. It revealed their need for God. Right? The, struggle was, the struggle was the experience that provided the way, ultimately for a deeper revelation about who Jesus is. And it shows more that God shows up in the midst of the struggle. 
Um, that's who he is. It's interesting that, but in the moment, they didn't get it. They didn't get it in the moment, but they did later. And there's something very instructive for us in that, that we're not going to always get it in the moment. In fact, most of the time, if not all the time, we're not going to get it in the moment. So what does this mean for us? Coming back to the beginning, we're all going to struggle. We live in a broken world. It's not the way it should be, and we're part of that brokenness. And so therefore, we're going to have struggles. We're going to have challenges. We're going to have adversity. We're going to have defeats. And Jesus told us that we're going to have that trouble. In fact, he said it in John 16, 33. This, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. He said, in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But listen to this. Take heart, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. So how are we to engage in our struggles, in these struggles? Are we to seek to resist the struggles or do everything we can to overcome them by our own strength and our own resources? That's typically our first move. But even then, we may find ourselves like those disciples straining at the oars that it just doesn't seem to be getting better. In fact, the, the more that we try, the worse it gets. If you've been in that situation, you know what I'm talking about. It's like quicksand. The more, the harder I try to make my life better, the worse it's getting. And we realize we can't fix all our own problems. We can't fix ourselves. We can't solve it. Well, the good news is that God doesn't expect us to fix ourselves, to solve all the problems. And he promises to come and help us. That's who he is. And I get great, great encouragement from this passage. The disciples weren't even calling out for help. So if you call out for help, you're a step ahead of them in, in humility. So don't lose track that God can use our struggles to get our attention and also to show himself in a special way and to give us help that we wouldn't have otherwise. It can be a gift. So what are we to do? When, when and not if, when we encounter struggles or as you think about a struggle you're facing right now or maybe one that's in the recent past or one that could be coming later today or sometime this week or this coming month, yes, call for help. And I shared a prayer at the Ash Wednesday service a couple days ago. A prayer that's been so helpful to me. God, I can't, but you can. God, I can't, but you can. When we face our limits and our insufficiency. We can humbly come to God and say, God, I can't, but you can. And put ourselves in his hands to ask that. And then when in the midst of the struggle, ask God, what do you want to show and teach me about yourself through this struggle? It could be a strange prayer in the middle of it, but definitely maybe so, maybe so after, after you've come through it, saying, what were you trying to show me about yourself? I'm sure the disciples later, as they reflected on this story, being like as they started to connect the dots and even Old Testament looking back and saying, wow, only God walks on the water. Only God is the one who passes by. And wow, these phrases, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid, just laced with the words of God all through it, revealing that Jesus is not just a nice guy or a good teacher or a prophet, but the son of God who came to be with us. For us, we can learn something in the midst of our struggles. And they can be a gift. The 18th century Jesuit leader Jean-Pierre du Cousade says this, God instructs the heart, not through ideas, but through suffering and adversity. So yes, we're called to love the God, our Lord, our God with all of our mind. We're to read books. We're to be in classes and groups and seminars and podcasts and blogs and all that good stuff and learn more and more about God. But it's not just learning about God. Typically, it's through suffering and adversity. God instructs our hearts. So we can resist that and try and make it go away. And, and like the rest of us in the United States these days, just make the pain go away. Do whatever it takes to make the pain go away. Or to say, okay, there's pain. I don't want it. Yes, ask God to take it away. That's a legitimate prayer. But in the midst of it, 
as you move through it, God, what do you want to show me about yourself? How do you want to grow me through that? Again, it's through resistance and tension. That's where growth occurs. So Jesus came down from the mountain to the sea to meet his disciples and to give them help. He revealed his identity. He gave them hope, and he did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. I think this points to the bigger picture of Jesus, that Jesus didn't stay on the mountaintop in the comforts of heaven, but Jesus decided to come down from heaven as the Son of God to be with us in the midst of the struggle, in the struggle that we can't fix on our own. As we face evils, we face sin, we can't fix the sin problem. We can't fix our broken relationship with God. That Jesus came down from the proverbial mountain, but he came down from heaven to be with us, to do what only he could do, live the perfect life we couldn't live, to give his life on the cross, give it away for the forgiveness of our sins, and to make the way for us to be restored into a right relationship with God forever. He did that for us. He saw us in the struggle. He sees you in the struggle, and he comes to you in the struggle. Can we, the question is, can we let it be the gift of struggle? That's my prayer for you as we consider this sermon. And going all the way back to the beginning, remember when, especially when Jesus and his disciples are separated, they find themselves in distress. But in that distress, how can we let that struggle become a gift? I want you to remember this from the sermon, that Jesus meets us in the midst of the struggles of life to show us who he is, and then we don't have to face life challenges alone. That's the one thing to remember. One thing to do, identify a struggle from the past, maybe right now, or something you're going to face in the future, and ask God this question. What do you want to teach me from that experience about yourself and about my relationship with you? Ask that question. Probe that question. See what comes out. Take a moment this week, even five minutes, ten minutes. Take out a blank piece of paper. Think about a struggle that you've been through, that you're going through, or you may face, and say, God, what do you want to teach me about myself? What do you want to be teaching me about you, God? And see what comes to your heart and mind. Because imagine if we really did this. If we looked at our struggles differently, recognizing we're going to have struggles. Jesus said it. In this world, you're going to have trouble. We can't escape it. So get that off the table. We're going to have the struggles. How can we let them be a gift to grow us, grow our faith, grow our understanding of God, and ultimately let him bring his help, his courage, in the midst of times where we need that courage when we can't fix it or make it better on our own. Does that make sense? Let's pray towards that end as we consider this struggle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've considered this courageous news today, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he didn't stay up on the mountainside praying and, and just watching his disciples struggling, but like you, God, when you looked at your people the Israelites trapped in Egypt calling out for help. You stepped down and helped them and you provided help through Moses and freed them. God, that's who you are. You see us in the struggle. You see us in the midst of it and you come to us. Until this day, I pray for every person who's heard this message, whatever struggle they have faced or are facing right now or whatever struggle they're gonna face in the future, near or otherwise, that you would allow them, God, to face it differently through the lens of what they've heard today. Jesus, that you would come to us in the midst of our struggle and indeed that it would become a gift of struggle. That would grow our faith in you, grow our understanding of you, and that we would receive that courage and help, the help that we cannot create for ourselves. We offer ourselves to you. Lead us forward in this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.